You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. You are listening to Amphibicast. I am your host, Dandro Bates, and tonight we're going to get into a topic that uh, is a little, little bit taboo, I guess you want to say. Um, it's what to do when you lose a frog, and I don't mean an escape. I mean basically to say what do you do when a frog dies while it's under your care. Uh, it is a common occurrence. It happens. It's one of those things that people don't often like to talk about. And uh, since I had a little extra time in this cycle, I wanted to just do a quick episode about uh, some of those concerns. Uh, we're going to run through a checklist of some questions that we should ask ourselves in terms of what may or may not have happened and hopefully figure out a way to maybe narrow down some of the possibilities so that we don't make any mistakes that might incur losses in the future. Because let's face it, no one wants to lose an animal. And... Um, we're going to get into all that, of course, but uh, as usual, thanks everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, got a nice rating on Spotify, so if you guys are listening on Spotify, thank you for the support there as well. Uh, I know I usually push the uh, Apple thing, but Spotify seems to be um, taking the lead now, so thanks everyone for that. And uh, if you're interested in supporting Amphibicast, the best way to do so would be to become a patron on Patreon. Uh, follow the link tree in the show description. That'll take you to everywhere you need to go. I've got a few different tiers for the Patreon page. I've got one that's as low as a dollar a month. If you want to just support the show, simplest way possible, dollar a month tier is perfect for you. Uh, the most popular tier, of course, though, is the $5 a month tier. That will get you a shout out at the beginning of an, up, uh, at the beginning of an upcoming episode, which is pretty cool. And uh, you'll also find links to the merch store. I've got some pretty cool frog stuff in there, different logo designs and whatnot. And you'll also find a link to In Situ Ecosystems Vivariums. If you make a purchase through that link, you will get 10% off as a listener of the show. So like I said, if you want to get a great discount on a good product with In Situ Ecosystems, follow that link, make the purchase. It's another great way to support the show. A small commission comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you whatsoever. So you get 10%, you get to support the show, and you get a nice quality of vivarium. And you'll also find a link in the show description for uh, Panamanian frog conservation. I did an episode a while back with Edgardo Griffith, and uh, if you know anything about Adelopis Zetecki, it's also known as the Panamanian golden frog, uh, they, they need a lot of work. And um, there's a lot going down there for their conservation, and they, they are in need. They do need funding. And uh, I included that link, which has nothing to do with me. I don't make anything off of that. I have no input with that whatsoever. It's just a direct link. If you want to donate to um, Project Golden Frog, follow that link. Great way to do so. Support conservation. And uh, again, that has nothing to do with me. I just, I kind of include that link because I think it's an important cause. So other than that, uh, let's get into tonight's topic. So what do you do when you lose a frog? Well, beginner, intermediate, or advanced, we've all been there. We add a frog into our lives. We start off with a new, a new frog, of our very, very first, or we add a new frog to our collection. We think we've done everything right, and somehow, for some reason, the frog passes away. It happens. We come downstairs one morning, take a look at the tank, and lo and behold, the frog has just gone the way of the dodo. And it can be very difficult. It can be a tough experience, no matter what your experience level is. It can be particularly discouraging for both beginner and intermediate keepers alike. And in fact, I'll tell you, uh, you know, a little secret. Yes, even advanced hobbyists lose an animal from time to time. I do talk with a lot of other keepers, a lot of advanced people. And yeah, they do sustain losses from time to time. It happens. Uh, 
The amphibian hobby isn't the most forgiving one out there, and it's practically impossible not to lose a frog, toad, or salamander at some point in your tenure as a keeper. But let's not get discouraged by what happened. Let's not beat ourselves up. We can see if we can figure out what happened so that we can hopefully learn from the experience and think of it as, as a teachable moment. And I, I know some people out there, they, they have different ideas of you know what their relationship is with their animals. Some people get very emotionally attached. That's fine. I totally understand that. And some people who are uh, have breeding projects or whatnot, it's more of a business angle. You want to make sure that your frogs are healthy so that you can get healthy frogs out to your customers. Um, you know, it, it runs the gambit. So regardless of, of how you feel, obviously, yeah, there's, there's an emotional component to it. But uh, we're going to kind of try and remove ourselves from that just for the sake of trying to find out objectively what may have happened. So I also want to mention that every situation may not have a conclusive answer. So to be honest, I mean, there, there will be unexplained losses. In fact, on a personal level, I had one of my mint terabellas pass away suddenly. After being in my care for six years, I, I raised a group of them up from froglets and I took it to heart. I had acquired these frogs from a good breeder and I took great care of them for six years. And I, I, one day I just came down and this one frog was just, it just died. It was in good bodily shape. Couldn't find anything physically wrong with it. It just died. And uh, I racked my brain as to what happened. What did I do? How did I make a mistake? And will whatever happened to that frog, will it re affect my remaining men? I still have another frog in that tank. Well, to date, nothing's happened to the other frog. It, it's been, uh, it's been about a month, two months. And I can only attribute it to some unknown variable. And we'll cover unknowns in a bit, but like I said, I want to get started with a, kind of like a concise checklist that we can go down and hopefully eliminate any possible causes piece by piece. And uh, remember, amphibians, they pose a unique challenge in captivity because they don't always exhibit obvious symptoms of illness. And sometimes they, they do, they die suddenly. This problem isn't unique to dart frogs. Uh, if you're listening, tree frogs, toads, whatever. Yes, it applies to almost all amphibians. Setup and husbandry, diet, supplementation, stress, pathogens, exposure to hazards, toxins, all these things can cause illness and death. So, like I said, once we've experienced a death, we should go through all the things on this list and see if it can kind of direct us in terms of what may or may not happen. And we'll get into unknowns a little bit, but let's get into some of the known causes of of death and, and illness. And uh, we'll kind of work through them piece by piece. And I want to start off, first of all, with where the animal came from. And um, this is kind of, kind of a disclaimer, and it's, it might be a little bit of a touchy, top, uh, touchy topic to some people, but I'm going to address not only captive bred animals, but wild caught. So we're going to ask ourselves, was the animal healthy to begin with? And from wild caught to captive bred, we want to make sure that the animal is healthy. And most species in the trade are captive bred, and it already gives them a better prognosis for long-term health. But Believe it or not, yes, wild-caught animals, they can be healthy. They can live long, full lives without incident. Uh, I, back 20, 30 years ago, a lot of stuff was wild-caught, and I did have frogs that lived natural, full, long, healthy lives. It's always advised to go with captive bred. Like I said, you get a better idea of age, how it was raised, and it does lessen the effects of field collection because obviously we don't want to put pressure on wild populations. And there's certain species that are almost always available as wild caught. In fact, there's even some species that can be sold as both, either wild caught or captive bred. Red-eyed tree frogs and Ufaga pamilia blue jeans are two prime examples. They're both sold as wild caught and as captive bred. 
And this can be a little bit tricky, especially if you're a beginner, you might not necessarily be able to tell the difference. And sometimes I have seen people misrepresent wild caught frogs as being captive bred. So I think it's important that we address wild caught as part of this discussion as well, because ignoring that is basically just putting our head in, you know, burying our head in the sand and acting like the problem isn't there. It, it is. Um, there are many fatalities that can be a function of being wild caught, and it'd be silly not to include wild caught animals along with captive bred, because the same causes of death can affect both. And since many of the beginner species, as I said, are commonly wild caught, uh, I feel like it would be at a disadvantage for people to not be aware of this. I don't want to put up a banner statement that says being wild caught is automatically a death sentence and you're a horrible keeper. People have wild caught. It happens. Uh, personally, I'm not a big fan of it, but I don't want to turn this into a referendum on the ethics. If you have a wild caught frog and you lost it, I'd encourage you to have a captive bred frog next time. But if for some reason you do end up having a wild caught frog in your possession and you lose it, you can still use all the things on this list to hopefully find out what may have happened. The big variable with wild caught, though, is that you really don't know the animal's history. You may get something from the importer or whoever you buy it from at the expo, the wholesaler or whatever, but we really don't know what happened. You could be getting a frog that's very, very old at the end of its life. It may have got beaten up during importation who knows? There's any number of possibilities. But at the end of the day, a frog is a frog. And the same causes can kill a captive bred frog as a wild caught. And I've seen both. I've seen wild caught animals that were very healthy, lived a long time. And I've seen captive bred animals that just look terrible and and died too. So we're going to, I'm not going to make a distinction here. Um, from here on in, we're going to kind of address both because like I said, you know, bad contaminated substrate can kill both. Um, overexposure to sup, you know, uh, an overdose of supplementation can kill both cold temperatures or excessively warm temperatures, whatever it can kill both. So if you do have a wild caught frog and you lost it, obviously I've already kind of belabored the issue, but all these things on this list still will apply to you. So, uh, let's, let's move forward now. And, um, let's ask ourselves, was the animal healthy when we got it. So right off the bat, let, let's kind of do a little bit of detective work and figure out what that what that means. Was the animal healthy? Do we know how it was cared for before it ended up as our responsibility? Did we acquire it from someone with a good reputation? Did we have it shipped without seeing it firsthand? Or did we buy it at a shop or an expo where we could visually see it and pick out a specific individual? Did the vendor we bought it from answer questions? Did you did you, know, did you did you talk about it with the vendor before you made the purchase? Did the vendor ask you questions? That's another thing. The hallmark of a good vendor is being able to answer questions and understanding the animals that they work with. If captive bred animals should be good to go, they should be good to go. The seller should be able to tell you, hopefully know some idea within reason when they were hatched or when they metamorphosed or whatever and uh, if they are selling wild caught which does happen they should be able to tell you how long the animal's been quarantined if it's been treated for diseases parasites etc good vendors pride themselves on selling healthy animals so if you went with a questionable vendor and you ended up with a sick animal you might want to look elsewhere next time or if you didn't get a tremendous amount of positive feedback uh you know again if there's an issue with a frog vendors sellers they want you to have a good experience they they want you to have a healthy animal and you know try ask yourself did you reach out to the seller 
that's another thing because sometimes issues happen. We think we know what we're doing. We, we might not necessarily have the right experience. A lot of a lot of sellers would tell you, why didn't you ask the seller first? So if you have an issue, a health issue, go to that seller. Say, hey, listen, something's going wrong. The seller might be able to guide you accordingly, maybe tweak some husbandry, maybe try a couple of different things. Ask yourself, did you do that? Was your first issue, did you call the seller and find out if you did something wrong? So like I said, if you went with someone who was reputable, had a good reputation, you should be able, at the very least, you know, maybe a, a message online or an email, something like that, should be able to get you answers. So that's one thing you want to ask yourself was, how was the whole purchase process? Well, you know, did you buy from someone reputable? Did you ask the person questions? Did that person inform you and ask you about how you had everything set up? Because that can be a crucial thing. If you lose a frog in the first couple of days, um, it can be any number of things. But like I said, that's usually a good time to reach out to the vendor and ask if something may have happened. Who knows? The vendor might even be able to, you know, possibly depending on the vendor might even be able to send you a replacement does happen you know develop a good develop a good relationship with the vendors and hopefully that can be a step that you can take to prevent incurring further losses down the line and i got news for you avoid flippers because if you go to an expo and i don't mean to be critical of expos too much but you see that table that's got a little bit of everything it's kind of like noah's ark it's got two it's got two of every animal and in the corner, there's a couple of tree frogs, and there's a couple of dart frogs, and then you got a couple of tarantulas or whatever. Um, that seller, not everybody, but may not necessarily be the best person to go for very specific information on that one species. So try to stick with people who work with that given species that you're looking for, because my opinion, I've been going to Expos for over 20 years, uh, you're probably going to get a better frog from those from that type of situation. So like I said... Make sure you got a good. Make sure you got a good frog to start off with. So next, we have to ask ourselves about, you know, we if we've got an idea of, of how the frog was kept, whatnot, what it was like beforehand. What made us purchase this particular animal? What did it look like when we got it? Clear eyes and skin are important. Always avoid animals with abrasions, lesions, visible malformations, such as. Uh, if the spine is visible, if you can see, I mean, f well, frogs really don't have much in the way of ribs, but uh, if you can see that back and, you know, those kind of quote-unquote ribs, that's generally a malnourished frog. Uh, deformed limbs and jaws, anorexia, or even obesity. You don't want to go with an obese frog either. Uh, these are all kind of red flags. If you buy a frog that has malformations, it's pretty obvious from the get-go that it had some sort of pre-existing problems. Although I will say there is there is an exception. Minor rostral abrasions are common in some wild-caught species, especially white's tree frogs, but those can actually heal relatively easily if there's no other issues going on. Um, I had frogs 20 years ago with rostral abrasions. If, if you don't know what that means, it's basically like a, a rubbing uh, away of the skin on the, the nose, which is the rostral region. Usually that happens from frogs that are crowded into larger containers, uh, crowded into containers, they're basically rubbing their snout up against the top of the container, usually against screen, and it creates, you know, a rubbed off area. Um, it, it, it can be okay. Um, that's one of those minor things I like to avoid it, but uh, I've had frogs in the past, 20 years ago, they had rostral abrasions, they healed without issue, but uh, it's not worth the risk if you're not prepared for the treatment if needed. So that's not to say that every situation will heal, but 
Uh, from personal experience, that's one of those situations where I've never lost a white's tree frog with a rostral abrasion. I, I haven't. But again, it, it can be risky. So, you know, if you bought a frog with rostral abrasions, there's a high likely, a high, a high possibility that um, the animal will probably be fine, but that doesn't exonerate you from having it examined by a vet, which you probably should anyway. So that's the one exception I'll, I'll make to that. But again, use your discretion. Um, coloration. Coloration should be vibrant and consistent with what's normal for that species or that more for that locale. There's some variation amongst members of species. And like I said, there's more of some locales to consider, but the skin and eyes should always be clear and vibrant with no imperfections. One thing to say about buying amphibians is you really, you want to look for a healthy animal. You should have an idea of what a healthy animal looks like and be willing to kind of commit to that phenotype. Uh, I know that there are certain people who like the idea of quote unquote rescuing an animal that they flat out know is in a bad sort. And there's many schools of thought on this and I'm I'm not going to get into the ethics of whether it's right or wrong. Uh, I don't, I don't mean rescuing an animal as I mean, taking, like taking in someone's pet that this person couldn't handle. I'm talking about the rescue of like buying an animal because you feel bad for it. You know, if you go to an expo and you see a frog that looks bad, buying that one and thinking you can rescue it as opposed to buying a healthier one, which is more likely to live. Um, it's a touchy topic. There's many schools of thought on it. Like I said, I'm not going to get into whether it's right or wrong, but the fact of the matter is if you come into possession of an animal that's in poor condition, you have to assume all responsibility for its well-being because you know that it's, it's, it's in a bad sort. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money to bring a sick amphibian around, and there's no way of knowing every factor that affected it prior to your involvement. Like I said, uh, this is a thing, oftentimes you see it with wild caught, you can see it with ca- captive bred. I've seen people who have no experience with Dendrobates tinctorius selling captive bred frogs that they bred themselves that look just absolutely terrible. So I would recommend these animals be avoided, but if you're up to the challenge, uh, it can be done, but again, it's going to, it's, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a lot of time and a lot of money. And especially if you're a beginner, I would advise you to just go with the healthy animal that looks visually, you know, the way of the way a frog of that species should, uh, like I said, it, it can be done. I personally don't think it's a good idea to quote unquote rescue a frog at an expo or from a pet store or whatever, because you're, you're paying for a frog that, you know, you know, is in bad condition. So at that point, you really can't blame anybody else because you've taken it on. If you want to do that, it's your choice. That's fine. I understand it. I understand where people's hearts are, but, um, that's a, that's a cause for sudden death or chronic health issues. If the animal is in bad shape when you get it. So that's one thing to cross off the list. If you've gotten a healthy looking animal, something that's, that's robust, has good body conformation, looks good, bright eyes, clear, um, nice clean tank. You should be buying it from someone who has everything clean, consistent with the way it should be. Then you've eliminated a lot of those possibilities. So at this point now, the frog is yours. It's, it's your problem. Well, I don't say your problem, but, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's now your responsibility. You've had it for more than a couple of days. It survived. It's made it through that crucial point of, of adjustment, whatever. And let's move on now to some of the other things that, um, might cause it. So we've made it to this point. We can say that we've ruled out a substantial number of issues that may have resulted in the loss. Let's say we did get a healthy young animal has proper care. We've set it up the way that we think we should, but 
ask yourself, did you set it up properly? Again, this is one of those things going back to asking the vendor, hey, this is how I have it set up. Is that appropriate for this animal? And, and of course, you need to do your homework. You need to investigate, find out uh, what the animal needs. But again, if the vendor is a good vendor, someone who's got a good reputation, the vendor should be able to tell you um, whether what you have is, is right or wrong. And of course, you want to make sure that your animal went into an enclosure that was set up prior there too. Uh, you want to make sure that the tank parameters are where they should be. Not a lot of variation. You know, most most animals don't really adapt predict, you know, particularly well to lots of extremes in captivity. So you want to ask yourself, did you set it up correctly? Um, did you get where, and, and where did you get your information from? That's another thing because I know I mentioned the vendor, but make sure that you've gotten your information from, from good sources. You know, I'm not on Facebook, so I can't comment on Facebook groups, but there are people who have good advice and there are people who have not so good advice. So my advice to you, <laughs> my advice will be to go through as much as you can and try to pick apart what you know, what you can base on fact is, is good husbandry as opposed to what you kind of should be fairly obvious is bad husbandry. But, you know, ask yourself, did you spend enough time investigating? Did you take the vendor's advice? Did you listen to the right people? Did you listen to the wrong people? Look for advice from experienced keepers. Post a picture of your setup online, a forum, whatever. Ask for a critique. Be willing to put up with uh, a little bit of negativity, though, and people can be a little rough. Um, that's unfortunately a part of the process, but... In the end, there are many people out there with constructive criticism that can help you tweak your husbandry. There's a lot of people out there that want to help you. I mean, bad thing about this hobby is there's a lot of people that want to criticize you and take you down. And look, people like that don't belong here. You know, if you're going to be critical and you're going to just crucify people outside of like really, really extreme circumstances where I could see that as being acceptable, this isn't for you. If you want to be productive, constructive, you want to encourage others, then this is the place for you. So like I said... You know, be willing to take a little bit of rough criticism along with the positive. It's just kind of the way the world goes. But like I said, most experienced keepers can pick up on someone who is legitimately willing to learn and can take advice. So, and that can also be a catalyst for you to receive not only advice from an experienced keeper, but also to develop a relationship with people who are knowledgeable. So, don't be afraid to ask questions about your enclosure before you put an animal in, or look, even if you put, after you put an animal in. Let's just say that something doesn't seem right. Post a picture of enclosure. Sometimes it can be something as simple as tweaking the temperatures or the ventilation or whatever. Ask yourself, did you do that? Did I get some sort of advice about my enclosure from people who I know or experience, people whose opinions I know I can trust and I know that are hopefully as accurate as possible? So... Always be willing to do that. Always be willing to take a little bit of a critique, a little bit of criticism in terms of how you have your setup. Because remember, especially if you're a beginner or even if you're advanced, you may not necessarily have everything dialed in and it's okay to take advice from other people. So be willing to learn, be humble, as well as you know, ask questions. Remember, you're the one asking the question. Uh, I, I've seen it on forums before where people will ask a really ridiculous question and then when they get the answer they kind of become combative about it so uh i mean for everybody out there who's listening like you know what i'm talking about you've seen on forums someone will say is it okay for me to keep 10 dendrobates tinctorious together in a 10 gallon tank and we all kind of take a deep breath and, and sigh and realize that you know the answer is no obviously you can't keep 10 dendrobates tinctorious in a 10 gallon tank 
And sometimes that one person will refuse to listen to reason. Those are extenuating circumstances. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about people who are arrogant and, and, and insist that the way they're doing it is correct, even though they're failing. We're talking about questioning your methods here. So uh, try and avoid stuff like that. Sometimes that can even be people trolling and just trying to get people riled up. But look, if you're legitimately curious, just be honest. Say, hey, listen, I'm, I, I'm, I want to know what I did wrong. Give me suggestions. You're probably going to you're probably going to get some some negative attention, but in there you will get positive, and that's what you want to look for. So, if you sustain a death, always ask, you know, hey, look at my enclosure. What happened? Is it anything that I did? And it may be something. So, that's always another thing to do is look at your setup, see if it was right, and if not, fix it. So, if we can establish the fact that our husbandry was correct, we can now consider some other prospects. Uh, how was the tank stocked? I know before I mentioned, you know, 10 Tinctorius in a 10-gallon tank, but that's kind of ridiculous. But we do need to ask ourselves, how was the tank stocked? Uh, how was it stocked? Did an animal die after we added another in, another individual to its enclosure or vice versa? Meaning, did we have a resident frog and we added a new one and the resident died? Or did we add the new one and the new one died? It's important to only keep compatible individuals together in appropriately sized enclosures. But if you sustain a loss after adding another individual, it's an important thing to consider. The more animals you have in a tank, the more variables you create. Did the animal die of stress? Did it bring a pathogen in that killed it and its tankmate or not its tankmate? Was there too much competition for food? Did an animal slowly or abruptly go off feed? If you're keeping a communal tank and you sustain a loss, there's any number of factors to consider. Uh, Cohabbing different species can introduce pathogens, competition, and social dynamics that could very easily explain a death. But it's also possible that cohabitation was not the culprit. In my case, I had two terribilis living together in a 36 by 18 fully planted enclosure. They'd been in that enclosure for years. And one just abruptly died one day. So can I blame that on the cohabitation? I don't know. You know, is it possible that one frog became a little bit rough on the other one and I just didn't see the behavior because obviously I can't watch it 24 hours a day? Anything is possible. You know, when you have that extra social dynamic, there's really no way of knowing. And I know certain people will keep, you know, they'll keep two white street frogs together. They'll keep a trio of dart frogs. They'll keep a colony of mossies. Um, if it's done correctly, yes, it can be done. I, I, you know, of course, we discourage the mixing of different species, and obviously, you don't want to cross morphs and whatnot. So that that obviously add that caveat in there. But I mean, that doesn't necessarily, you know, how do I put this? Having it having a tinctorius and an erratus in one tank is not necessarily going to contribute to the death of one or the other. It could happen with two members of the same species, two different. But obviously. You know, you don't want your species to mix in that way, but that should kind of go without saying. But like I said, ask yourself if you're keeping more than one frog in a tank, what happened? Did something change? Did I were they mismatched in size? Were they competing for resources? Tree frogs, when they hang out in that water bowl together, they're not hanging out there because they enjoy each other's company. They're hanging out there because they want that water bowl. They both want to be in that resource. So that's another thing you have to ask yourself. Something so simple as if you've got two frogs that are hugging a small water bowl, add a bigger bowl, add an add a second bowl. See if that helps. And again, that kind of goes back to the 
husbandry in the tank description. So see if, if, if that dynamic pans out as well. Um, you know, cause when you have two frogs in one tank, it's, it's possible that again, that social dynamic played an issue. So you really have to evaluate whether or not that came into being as some sort of a problem. So let's just say that we're talking about, um, well, let's talk about long-term health now. Let's say that you've had the frog for an extended period, whether it's you know a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. Long-term health really isn't always something that we thought about in the past, and um, we often attribute you know death to an acute illness, but it can be the result of a chronic issue, and um, you know chronic issues can affect frogs later in life, in the middle of life, whatever. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, how have we been caring for them in the long term if we sustain a death? What are we feeding? How much? Did we provide supplements? Did we provide proper calcium or UV as required? Did we overdo it? Did we use too much? It is possible to overdose. Uh, do we know the extent to which captive amphibian health varies among the, as they age? Rather, no, no, we don't. Uh, I mean, in the old days, the strongest wild caught animals they were the ones that survived to old age, and there really wasn't an abundance of captive bred animals the way there are today. So. Has the abundance of animals in the hobby inadvertently led to long-term chronic health concerns that we may not have seen 20 years ago? Are animals dying of obesity? Probably yes. Oversupplementation, yes. Under-supplementation, under definitely. Oversupplementation, very distinctly possible. Long-term dietary deficiencies, obviously we know what about MBD. That's a whole episode in and of itself, but you know MBD is a long-term chronic condition that can result in a fatality. So you have to ask yourself that. Diseases that normally wouldn't occur in wild animals, they, they seem to be occurring in captive populations because we've eliminated natural selection and we're allowing as many animals as possible to make it to adulthood. And that just sort of increases this gene pool dramatically. By this, I mean to say that it's possible for animals to develop health issues that are a result of what we do and how their genes can handle what we do. Frog anatomy isn't that dissimilar from other vertebrates, and it's reasonable to assume that they can get genetic disorders, they can have uh, invisible diseases that we might not be able to see, they may have cancers, they may have heart failure. There's just so many of them out there that anything is possible. So you have to ask yourself, did your long-term care contribute to a health concern or is it just a freak loss due to a long-term health concern that you may not have had any control over whatsoever? Exotics vets are becoming more and more popular. They're treating, they're treating the species that seem to have the most problems. And I can tell you from personal experience, you know, years back, not to compare apples with oranges, but ball pythons going back 30 years were very difficult to keep in captivity. They were. But to our knowledge, they didn't have any real genetic diseases the way that some of them do today. I know one of the morphs, I think it's the spider morph. Uh, I actually read an interesting paper about it. Something in the paper showed that the, the bones in their inner ear are malformed as a result of, of the genetics that, that selects for a certain color pattern. And uh, it causes them to have these wobbly heads and these neurological disorders. It's, 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 it's pretty sad, actually. But, um, you know, that's a function of just, just genetics. There's so many different morphs of, of ball python that at some point, you know, just bad genetics is going to make its way in there. You know, can it happen with frogs? It, it's, it's possible with anything. You know, if you have a million frogs in captivity, you're going to have many, many more species, many more individuals that could have the possibility of health problem. It just, it's just the way it goes. So basically what I'm trying to say is, Yes, your frog may have developed 
who knows what. It may have developed cancer. It may have developed a, a heart issue. It may have died from obesity. Do frogs become diabetic? Who knows? These are all possibilities. And long-term health, you have to consider yourself, you know, did, did, I, did I overdo it? Did I, did I feed the wrong food items? Did I feed too much? Did I make my frog obese? Was it under waste? Was it dehydrated? These are all things that can result in long-term. And finally, we need to address environmental concerns that may have accidentally resulted in death. And by environmental, I, I mean things kind of outside the realms of what we would normally control inside of a tank. And these situations generally include uh, the potential for the buildup of toxins in the enclosure or exposure to things that are, come from outside the enclosure. So one easy way to kill a frog is to induce a toxin into its tank. Pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, solvents, cleaning agents, all can be fatal or near fatal. So if you do sustain a, a, a loss, ask yourself, did something happen to talk that frog out in the tank? Did I add something to it? Did you source your substrate material from a questionable place? Uh, did the frog's behavior change once you made a substrate change or you added extra plants? Uh, if it's an aquatic species, did you do water changes? Did you introduce an, uh, did you introduce new aquatic plants? Uh, how's your water quality? Is it treated with chlorine? Is it treated with chloramine? Did your water district change the additives? I mean, out by me, there was a, a significant addition of uh, extra chlorine during the summer. That affects my water quality. Uh, if it has chlorine and chloramine, did you treat the water? Is your filtration appropriate? Are your feeder animals safe? Did you feed wild insects that may have been exposed to parasites or uh, pesticides, herbicides, whatever. Uh, has there ever been any exposure to pathogens or contaminants? If you've had a healthy animal for a long time and death coincides with a substrate change, a water quality issue, a change in feeders, it's fair to say you may have actually poisoned your frog. It, it, it can and does happen. In fact, in the old days, and this is before the, the whole leaf litter um, I don't want to say trend because leaf litter is actually a very, very effective substrate. But uh, I should say before leaf litter became popular, in the old days, the little mom and pop reps, uh, reptile sh stores or just pet stores, you didn't get a, a live, a live gu guarantee on any amphibian because uh, they were just so sensitive. And if you did get a guarantee, which was usually only a day or two, it was voided if you used anything from outside inside that tank. So if you took a twig or a branch or a leaf litter from outside and you put it in that tank... That automatically nullified anything you did because, I mean, in the infancy of the hobby back then, people at least knew that trees could be treated with pesticides or herbicides or whatever, and that could have an adverse effect on the frog. So did you get a bad batch of something? You know, if you're using, I know a lot of people use topsoil as substrates, especially with like toads and salamanders or whatnot. Uh, did you get a bad bag of topsoil? Did you get a bad bag of, of mulch? Did you buy something from... Like peat moss, did you buy something at a big box store like Home Depot or Lowe's and, you know, a bag of pesticides sat on it or, you know, they had an ant problem, they sprayed it with, with pesticide. Who knows? Those are all things you got to consider is the potential exposure to toxins. Another thing worth mentioning is, and we kind of talked about things that would come from the outside and things that can come from the inside and from the frog itself is, you know, frogs do produce their own, their own waste and their own toxins. Tree frogs, for example, they, they generally shed and soak daily. They often leave a residue on the glass or in the water dish. It's a normal part of their metabolic process. They discard waste and they, they move along. But in the tank, 
They can't leave, and it's up to us to make sure that that glass is clean and that fresh water is provided consistently. And the metabolic junk in those secretions, the, the shed and the bodily waste, that can adversely affect the frog and cause it to tox out and, and die. Even if you've had a frog for a long period of time, if you neglect that cleaning process, yeah, that can happen. And that's the, this is that's from direct conversations I've had with a lot of people who have a lot of experience with tree frogs is they can tox out. They can shed, and that shed can you know, release different things that will make the frog sick. And remember, you're keeping a frog in a box. It's it's it, No matter what, how we justify it, it's, it's still a glass box. So we have to make sure that if it's a species that requires a tremendous amount of cleanliness, like certain tree frogs, we have to follow through with that. Dart frogs are more forgiving. They kind of live on the forest on the forest floor. They're a little bit less, a little bit less delicate, we could say, than certain tree frogs. But we have to be mindful of that. Did we allow the frog's own metabolic processes to basically poison it? Um, a Pac-Man and pixie frogs—that's another example. They shed and produce substantial amounts of waste. And if you allow a frog to wallow in that for too long, yes, it it can tox out and it can die unexpectedly. Case in point, 25 years ago, it was common to keep Pac-Man and pixie frogs in on all sorts of weird stuff, everything from gravel to whatnot, and it was also very common to keep them without substrate, and I mean only an inch of water or so, and maybe a rock or a piece of cork bog for them to crawl out on. Uh, again, it, this was the old days, We people didn't really understand, you know, you wanted to avoid things like impaction, but um, the only way to do that seemed to be to keep them on really nothing, just 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 plain water and change it regularly. I did lose frogs at that time from toxing out. Frogs would shed or they would, you know, they would go to the bathroom. And if I didn't get to change that water immediately, it didn't take much for that frog to tox out. So that's another thing to consider is if you have a rapid loss of say like a non-dart frog, Pac-Man frog, pixie frog, or a tree frog, did you keep the enclosure clean enough? You know, and the whole the whole bioactive thing i know people i mean all of us in the amphibian world we we you know kind of understand that it's it's it can be done right it can be done wrong but if you have a certain species like a, a pac-man or a pixie you're still going to have to do substrate changes you're still going to have to wipe down glass you can't just put a bunch of dirt in a box with a piece of pothos and say that it's going to just go ad finitum without any problems. You have to be on top of that. You do have to occasionally change substrate. If the frog sheds and makes a mess, you, you have to clean that out because those those metabolic toxins, that, that waste, it, it, it can kill the frog. Does it happen frequently? To be honest, I don't know. I, I, I lost one frog from it and then I learned the hard way that I wasn't going to keep them that way again. But... Um, it is heard of, you know, I do people hear, I do hear about people having abrupt losses of certain frogs, Pac-Man frogs, pixie frogs, tree frogs, whatever. And a lot of times, yeah, you can attribute to that. So you have to ask yourself, you know, in the long term, did you keep the frog clean? Did you manage to keep it in a way that's consistent with being healthy? You know, obviously any animal can't live in its own filth and survive. It, it can't happen. And again, with frogs, we don't necessarily see that. A lot of times they'll, they'll consume the shed, they'll eat it, but there's still stuff there that we can't see. So you're going to have to be on top of that. You know, if you are using a naturalistic terrarium, that's great. That's wonderful. I believe in that. I All of my terrariums have been for like 20 years. I've, I've kept them that way. But that doesn't 
excuse you from having to do basic maintenance. And sometimes that does involve a full substrate change. If you've got a pixie and it fouls that substrate, it probably all should go, or, or at the very least, a substantial part of it, just so you're not allowing any of that metabolic waste to build up and potentially make the frog sick or, to, or for it to become fatal. It can happen. So, And finally, we need to address, like I said before, the unknown. Frogs may die suddenly due to any number of causes, some of many of which I've mentioned, but there's always going to be situations that we just can't figure out, and you'll never know. If enough people have the same unknown deaths and compare notes at some point maybe we can find a pattern to it uh, it's important to share your failures so if you do lose a frog and you start discussing it with someone else maybe keep a keep a log of what happened you know write down what happened keep it somewhere and as you compare notes with another keeper the other keeper might say hey you know what i had the same problem you know i uh, i bought a bag of uh, mulch from such and such and my frogs died uh, or uh, hey, you know, I just switched my crickets and I had a bunch of frogs die, or I added some, I added some new fruit flies to my media and uh, all my fruit flies died. Anything like that. Anytime you have a substantial death, compare notes, talk to other people, find out what they've experienced, and narrow it down. Okay, this is a community. We need to work together. We need to cooperate, and. You know, sharing your successes is great. You got a species to breed. That's great. You have a beautiful terrarium. That's great. But it's okay to share your failures. When something happens, look, own the mistake, accept responsibility for it, learn from it, and move on. And that's the best way in the long term to make sure that you're going to have success keeping amphibians of any type. So... Other than that, I hope this was helpful to you guys. Uh, if you're a beginner, again, I, I hope that this kind of enlightened you and maybe gave you a little bit of insight in terms of what to do. You know, I hate to say when, but if and when, you know, it probably will be when at some point. If you do lose a frog, what are some things that you can do to figure out why it happened and keep it from happening again? So, like I said, you know, ask for ask for critiques from advanced keepers. Talk to vendors, make sure you've done enough of your homework that you possibly can, and always reevaluate your keeping. Always think about what you're doing, how you're doing it, and most importantly, why you're doing it. Because at the end of the day, why we're doing this should really be all for the frog, the toad, salamander, axolotl, whatever we're keeping. So, other than that, I hope you, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I know it was a little serious, a little bit grim, but uh, I wanted to do a show that addressed the topic because I think that it's important you know, you lose a frog, we want to know why, figure it out, you know, that's the best, that's the best way to do it, figure it out, and learn from your mistakes, and hopefully try not to make them again in the future, so, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, I've got another one great, another great one coming up next week, and uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed it, catch up with you again soon.